Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about those annoying yellow smiley faces. Mm -mm -mm. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today, we are talking about the essence of the mind connecting consciousness and cognition to our physical health and well-being. And my first guest today is Dr. Dan Siegel, who is currently clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, where he is on the faculty of the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. Dr. Siegel is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, where, which focuses on how the development of Mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both the professional and lay audiences. His newest book, which I am delighted to be reading, is entitled Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, which is going to be released very shortly. Welcome, Dan. Welcome, Dr. Dan Siegel. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Yes, I should say be, be back with us once again. This book arrived on my desk last week and I was so delighted to receive it and I'm enjoying it immensely. And I want to introduce our listeners to the topic of this book because it's a little bit different from a conventional book about medicine and very different uh, in its approach to really about the mind and meditation and our consciousness. It's a hybrid, I would say, a very philosophical and poetic one. Well, thanks. Um, you know, it's a, an exciting moment to bring the different sciences together and extend it out to the general public with a lot of different uh, ways of Im immersing yourself in what the mind is. So I'm, I'm glad you're liking it, Lisa. It's really great. Yes, we are going to we are going to get the word out, but let's talk about the definition of the mind versus the brain or clarifying. Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting question. Um, you've got me right in the midst of a bunch of lectures I've been giving in um, in Washington, D.C. and in Rome and just now in California um, to a, a lot of different people. And it's so interesting because the definition of the mind is something that is actually missing in the various fields that deal with the mind. And the brain is actually something as complicated as it is that's easier to define, an organ inside your body that is composed of neurons and their supportive glial cells. There's a whole bunch of them, you know, over 100 billion neurons and trillions of these supportive cells. So it's a complex organ, but we can define it, you know, as a system uh, of 
uh, neurons and their supportive cells that interconnect not only the whole body, but the body with the rest of the world. So that's the brain. When it comes to the mind, what's so interesting about it is, let's say, the field of psychiatry I work in or the broader field of mental health, which includes psychology and social work and psychiatric nursing and people in various forms of educational and occupational therapy, music therapy, dance therapy. We're all a part of the field of mental health. You know, we don't have a definition of the mind in that clinical field. I was just in a room with a thousand people and I asked them, you know, how many of you are mental health professionals? Everybody raised their hand. How many of you received a definition of the mind in your training? One person out of a thousand raised their hand. I've asked over a hundred thousand and it's usually about 2%. So that was a pretty low percentage, but it's common to think we have a definition of it because we have descriptions, you know, our feelings, our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, our longings, all that stuff, memory, things like that. But those are great descriptions, but not definitions. So um, this book, Mind, is all about offering a definition of the mind that I, I provided to a group of scientists in 1992. And from that definition of the mind came a, a definition of what a healthy mind would be. And then in the last you know quarter of a century, really, that, that amount of time, there's been a, a, a tremendous amount of research that uh, supports uh, what this definition implies in terms of what a healthy mind would be. So I'm happy to talk about it. But just to say that if you ask the question, what is the common definition of the mind? The only thing you really hear is mind is what brain does. And that's been said since the time of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago. And it just may not be the full story, even though in academics, that's often what you'll hear. Wow. Well, that that, that is a mouthful. And when I think in my own mind or, or in my brain, I'm not sure which it is that's doing the thinking part. I mean, I, I define the brain as this sort of the architectural hardware, right? The vessel, because we know it's made up of all of these parts and things. And the mind is the operating system or the soft goods. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, often people will say that, and, I, and that's what that people mean when they say the mind is what the brain does. And um, I just don't think that's the full story, actually. So I, I think it's um, an understandable thing that we believe, and I think there's a lot of um, implications to that. And certainly we can study the brain by putting it in a scanner, and if you get an insult to the brain, you know, an injury, for example, or a stroke, a tumor, you know, you affect certain mental processes. There's no question about that. The, the brain is really, really crucial to what the mind is all about, our feelings, our thoughts, our memories, things like that. Um, but if you start with the simple statement that the word mind, M-I-N-D, uh, implies at least three things, and there's even a fourth we can talk about, it, but it, one is your subjective experience. So, you have a feeling right now when I say, Lisa, do you have a feeling, right? I do. <laughs> and you have an awareness of that feeling. So you have two things there. You have the subjective quality of being alive called subjectivity or subjective experience. That's one thing that's built into the mind. And then you have your ability to know that you're having a subjective experience, which is called consciousness or awareness. So at a minimum, awareness and its subjective experience is just not the same as brain activity. So even though you may say it's software and that kind of thing, or people say the mind is what the brain does, the, the reality is going from neuronal firing and cellular functions inside of a head and having the fullness of what it means to be human and having subjective experience and being aware of it they're just not the same entity, even if subjective experience and consciousness completely depend upon the brain. It doesn't mean it's the same as the brain. And that's just uh, a process we can talk about in a moment. But so that's the first thing. The second thing is we have this thing called information processing, which doesn't need consciousness. And that we have even right now between us, uh, as you and I talk to each other and people are listening you know, that's a sharing of information. And 
you know, the computers we have, the newspapers we read, the libraries we, we, we produce, these are all shared forms of information. So when you think about the mind as being an information processor, it, you realize it's more than just brain activity. When you think about culture, for example, it's how we share information within a society. Or if you think about a family, a family has a mental process, which is comprised of how it communicates within itself as a whole family, which is basically relationships between one or another person or among many people. And so when you start thinking about that, we go, well, hold on. If I'm a, an anthropologist studying culture or a sociologist studying groups, um, I wouldn't ever say the mind is just brain function, but um, I would say it's it's socially embedded. So what happened to me basically was years ago, 1992, in the beginning of the decade of the brain, I had, I had asked about 40 scientists to come together from a lot of different sciences. And we were addressing one question, which is your question. What is the connection between the mind and the brain? What, are they the same? Is it just different words for the same thing? And the group could define the brain. That was easy. But the mind, no one had a definition for. So the following definition I'm going to give you is what I talk about in the book, which is that to to um, have this party continue back in 1992 of anthropologists and sociologists and neuroscientists and everyone in the room I'd invited could not get along because they couldn't decide on what this mind thing was. So I went for a walk, actually talk about the beach. You know, I went for a long walk on the beach and and I thought, gosh, you know, if you're walking along a beach and I love I love the coast, you know, and I grew up here uh in Southern California and I was walking along this beach where I was a kid and an adolescent and, and now I was walking as a person in my young thirties. Um and I thought, well what is the coastline, right? What is it made of? And is it is it just the, the sand or is it the ocean? And then, then it just occurred to me that it's really both. You know, you can't have this coast without both the sea and the shore. And then I thought, well, what what is this really all about? And as the waves were coming in, I thought, well, you know, what a, a relationship, let's say, between a, a parent and a child shares in common with what the brain is doing is its patterns of energy flow. Flow means change and energy is something that can manifest itself as electrical energy or sound energy right now as we talk to each other. And the bottom line is energy flow can be symbolic. Like if I say beach or if I just go in the former, you know, there's information in the latter, there's just pure energy. So you have this phrase energy and information flow. And the bottom line is, the mind, I think, is an emergent property of energy and information flow that's happening within your whole body, not just your skull. It's not just a brain thing, but it's also happening between you and other people or you and the environment around you, you and the planet. So then you say, well, okay, if that's true, if the mind, just like the coastline, is both sea and shore, if the mind is both within and between, what is this mind thing? Right? Yes. What should it be? The big and, question. <laughs> yeah. And so what I said to the group was, I said, look, the system that the mind seems to be emerging from, which of course is the brain, but it's also the whole body. And hey, it's also our relationship. So what kind of singular thing, a mind, could seem to be in, in what you might say is two places within and between, but it's actually one place because when you think of it as energy and information flow, it isn't restricted by the skull and it's not even restricted by the skin. So it, it seems like it's two places, but it's actually not. It's one thing. And then what would that thing be? And there's a whole you know science behind this, but the, the take-home message is, I think it's part of what's called a complex system, which is this like a cloud. It's capable of being chaotic, it's open, it's nonlinear, all these things, you know, 
I go into detail in the book with, but here yeah, it's just, we're going to have to jump off for a quick break, and then we're going to come back because I don't. I, I, I apologize for interrupting your flow, but we must go. Um, to learn more, please visit www.drdansiegel.com. On Twitter, he is at Dr. Dan Siegel, and on Facebook, that page is Dr. Dan Siegel. Once again, the book is Mind: A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, and it is going to be released any moment. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I am having, I will call it, a delicious conversation with Dr. Dan Siegel about his newest book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. And prior to the break, Dan and I were talking about the definition between the brain and the mind. And Dan, you were talking so poetically actually about the mind and some of the intangibles that may be external, but part of the internal experience. And I would love for you to continue that because it's, it's very deep and it offers a very different perspective of what we're all doing here on this planet and why. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And here's the thing, you know, you can ask me a question like what's the connection between the mind and the brain and I can give you like a one sentence answer. But the fact is, you know, it's really helpful to take a little bit more time than one sentence like we're doing here. And thank you for the space to do that, to realize that we believe certain things about the mind, like the mind is just your brain activity and it's just in your head. And if you take a little bit of time and actually immerse yourself in this thing that we've been talking about, which is the mind is some kind of aspect of energy and information flow that is, yes, in your head, that's the brain part, but it's throughout your whole body and in your relationships. Well, the the reasoning that comes from that line of thinking goes like this. The system that gives rise to the mind has a mathematical name, and it's called complexity. And in the mathematics of complex systems like a cloud, there's something called emergence, which means something is arising from the interaction of the elements of the system. And the way to get a feeling for that is like if you look in the sky and look at clouds, you know, those are water molecules and air molecules. But what they make are these amazing shapes. So the shape is where you get the phrase the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's a process of complexity, which means that what's emerging from the interaction of the the singular elements, in this case, water molecules, air molecules, is something much bigger. So what I think, and what I said to this group back in 1992, this group of 40 scientists, was the mind might be an emergent process that is coming from embodied energy flow, so not just in the skull, and fully relational energy flow, that this flow is not limited by skull or skin, as we said. So here's the thing. You say, well, 
it could be that consciousness is one aspect of such emergence and its subjective feeling would be there. It could be, of course, information processing is part of that and it's part of the definition. Energy and information flow is what we're saying is the basic unit, like water and air is the basic unit of a cloud. The basic unit of you, Lisa, and your mind is energy and information flow. So you go, okay, but there's another aspect of it that is straight out of math called self-organization. And this is an emergent property of complex systems that regulates how the cloud unfolds. It regulates how your life unfolds. And the thing about defining the mind as the emergent self-organizing, that's what it is, embodied and relational, that's where it is. And what does it do? It regulates, it's a process that regulates energy and information flow. When you say that, then you go, okay, well, if this is the definition and it's what I presented to those 40 scientists, amazingly, they all felt that was a good place for us to begin. And our meetings went on for four and a half years. And it gave rise to a field called interpersonal neurobiology, which I work in where we combine all the sciences into one framework. And the bottom line from 1992 is the prediction was that if the mind is this self-organizing process, then optimal self-organization, which we can define in a moment, would be what a healthy mind would be doing. And you can ask the question from math, how do you optimize self-organization? There is an answer. And amazingly, the answer is quite simple. When you don't optimize self-organization, you get chaos or rigidity. And when you do optimize it, you get harmony. You get something being flexible and adaptive, and it holds together over time called coherent. It's energized and it's stable, and that spells the word faces, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. I gave such a big, huge shout from the very room I'm in right here uh, speaking to you that I woke people up in the house because, to me, that mathematical statement was the best definition of mental health I'd ever seen. It's actually, the only, it's actually the only definition of, of health I've ever seen. But anyway, so so the prediction is you say, well, how do you do that? And here's the simple answer. You integrate, you differentiate stuff, make them different and link them. So the guess in 1992 was simply this. Mental disorders or medical disorders or climate disorders, you know, planetary disorders, community dysfunction, you know, um, comes with chaos or rigidity. That's what you see. And you would see impaired differentiation and impaired linkage. What that means in a relationship is you're not respecting differences and you're not promoting compassionate, respectful communication as a linkage. So I'm an attachment researcher. This explained the entire field of attachment research, you know, how parents relate to children and then how that determines a child's development. So the, the proposal was integration is health. Yeah. And so since 92, there's been a ton of evidence, and I, I, I highlight in the book, to show, in fact, now that that proposal looks like it just might be true. And the interesting thing about that is every disorder that's ever been studied, there's impaired integration in the brain. And a study that came out last year shows that if you had to look for the one brain factor, for example, associated with every variable of well-being that the researchers could find, this is the International Human Connectome Project, they showed integration in the brain was the best um, predictor of well-being. Wow. And this ties so closely to how modern Western medicine um, has really uh, not incorporated this the, the mind aspect into its medicine. Yes, we can treat the body, but you, you write about this in the book that um, among physicians around, that very little attention was being paid to the feelings, thoughts, memories, and meaning of the patients that doctors are treating. Exactly. Well, this is the sad, sad truth that unfortunately remains today. And even when you look at the um, way medical care is happening uh, in modern times, physicians are, are getting burnt out. They're losing empathy. They're really, really struggling because we don't give them any support for <laughs> developing their own minds. And of course, patients also are suffering 
because the doctors are acting like they're just a bag of chemicals, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, when I dropped out of medical school before I ultimately came back, you know, I made up this word mindsight because I had to protect myself from the medical socialization process, which acted as if both patients and physicians lacked a mind, that they lacked this subjective core of experience. Now, the amazing thing is integration can transform all that. And it's about not just medical care for us, you know, human beings, but it's it's medical care for the planet. Because yeah. when you go deeply into integration and look at how modern society has been really since the time of Hippocrates, unfortunately, where the statement, the mind only comes from the brain, which is a very common statement, you know, um, that means that the self, which comes from the mind, uh, many people would say, is a solitary entity. And so people lose a sense of connection and meaning because everything that they're raised with from the time they're with, the, with their parents to the time they go to school, from the messages they receive from society, and even from the lessons we're learning from modern science, the self is separate. But in fact, an integrated identity would be both a me and a we combined. You'd realize I have a, an internal sense of self, yes, but I also have an equally important, only differentiated, distinct, yeah. connected self, which is a we. And that's this word, we, M-W-E, I talk about at the end of the book. You know, that that's the kind of integrated identity we need to move people towards. And that's the way we can help take care of the planet when we realize the planet literally is a part of our body. It's a part of who we are. And it's not a trash can. And no, if, we, no. if we lived a life like that, you know, the, the, the medical health of humanity and all living beings depends on our consciousness as human beings. And part of why I wrote this book was because I just got this sinking feeling that if we keep on um, with the assumption that we've had for 2,500 years, that the mind is just brain activity or, you know, just putting the self inside of a skull is actually not only a partial truth, but it actually may be kind of like a lie that is really destructive and that exposing that myth and its actual scientific um, falseness would be important, not just for academic reasons, but for reasons of the health of the planet and all of the living creatures, including us human beings who are on Earth. So that's, you know, part of, uh, I think, the, the feelings you may pick up from the book are that this isn't just a, an intellectual exercise. This is actually a call for all of us to reflect on who we really are, to rise above the things we may have been taught by school, society and science, and maybe think about a new way of really integrating our identity, of, of opening awareness to a, a new uh, age of how we can see what the mind really is. So, um, on, on page 30 of the book that I'm holding in my hands, uh, there's a passage page. that I'd love for you to read if you'd be willing to do so. We know page 30 or 330? 330. 330, yes. Well, this is the last page of the, the, um, the book. Um, and it goes like this. There's actually a picture from my daughter of a bunch of people on a, a cliff in Norway. And the book actually starts out with um, a photo of me on a cliff on Norway. And it just was a coincidence that she had this in her file. So um, that's the photo on the page. But above the photo is the following passage. It says this. Can you imagine a world in which we can not only explore a definition of the mind, but also share in the view of what may be fundamentally needed to cultivate healthy minds and a healthy world. This is where our journey has taken us. Kindness and compassion are integration made visible. With presence as our portal for integration, kindness for the mind is as natural as breathing for the body. 
together we can make the potential of these simple truths the actual reality of our shared lives. Ah, so beautifully said. And there's new meaning now to muy. To me, yeah. <laughs> we're about out of time, but I want to make sure that our listeners not just walk and go out, but run to get this book because we're talking about mind, a journey to the heart of being human with Dr. Dan Siegel, and to learn more about we, we, and me. Um, really, I urge you to buy this book. It is, um, it, it is delighting me, as always, you do as well, Dr. Dan Siegel. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's really, it's an honor to be here with you. And this is a journey, literally, we're all on together. Yes. And so thank you for all your work bringing us together. Thank you. Well, this is, this is what I get to do. You know, this is my honor as well. To learn more about the work of Dr. Dan Siegel, please visit his website, drdansiegel.com. On Twitter, the handle is at Dr. Dan Siegel. And on Facebook, Guess what? Dr. Dan Siegel. And once again, I want to just give a plug for this book because it's so fabulous. Mind, a journey to the heart of being human. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lisa. Pleasure to be with you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we're talking about the mind-brain connection. And my next guest has spent a lifetime really inquiring uh, studying and treating the mind. In fact, we're talking about a new book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. I'd like to welcome Dr. James Doty, who is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, of which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. Dr. Doty collaborates with scientists from a number of disciplines examining the neural, social, and moral basis for compassion and altruism. Dr. Doty is also a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, as well as an inventor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, and also a, a, a magic enthusiast, right, Jim? Uh, <clears throat> yes, that's actually true. And that started many years ago when you were 12. Uh, yes, uh, um, it was sort of an outlet for um, actually hiding from the, my own pain at the time, uh, the pain of my own personal circumstance, which uh, was a result of a family environment in which my father uh, was an alcoholic. My mother had had a stroke and was partially paralyzed, uh, was chronically depressed, had attempted suicide. And in fact, um, we were on public assistance, had been evicted uh, different times. And so uh, it was a place for me to go into my own little world. And about that time, you met a woman named Ruth that changed your perspective, I think. 
No, that's exactly right. Uh, by the age of 12, I was uh, angry about my personal situation. I felt I didn't have any uh, hope of uh, really achieving anything and sort of had accepted my lot, but not cheerfully. And uh, I was becoming a delinquent. And this, I think, frequently happens with uh, young people in similar sorts of circumstances, because if you don't have any hope and you live in despair, nothing really matters what you do and you feel like no one particularly cares about you. Um, and when I walked into this magic shop, uh, of course, I was looking for some new magic tricks, but the owner was not there. In fact, his mother was there um, minding the shop, if you will, and she actually knew nothing about the magic in the store, but she uh, knew about a different type of magic. And she w was what I describe as an earth mother type with this radiant smile. And it's one of these people who I think we all meet from time to time who just immediately embrace you. You feel the sense of acceptance. You feel this uh, immense war. And she was that type of person. And she greeted me enthusiastically. And we began a conversation. And she actually uh, asked me some penetrating questions, which normally I would not have answered or been quite shy about answering. But the manner in which she asked and her warmth made me feel uh, trusting enough to frankly tell her the truth. And uh, after about 20 or 30 minutes of conversation, she said to me, I'm here for the summer, another six weeks. And, you know, I really think I could do something for you. Uh, if you showed up every day and, uh, <clears throat> I wish I could tell you, I had insight as to what that would entail or why I agreed to do that. <laughs> Frankly, I didn't. In fact, the motivating factor was her kindness and warmth and the fact that she was feeding me uh chips Ahoy cookies. Right. Well, you know, that, but that was the magic. Exactly. Exactly. That was that was the holy grail that you were meant to uh, receive, I guess, at the moment. <laughs> yes. No, I I, uh, I think that's right. And uh, it was the perfect moment uh, in the sense that I was, if you will, lost and uh, didn't see myself as having a future and was angry, as I said. And uh what happened is I met with her for an hour or two every day for the next six weeks. And the fundamental nature of that interaction with her uh, changed the trajectory of my life. And I tell people that uh, basically uh, that interaction uh, actually um, resulted in a change in my brain. Yeah. And which leads me to the next question is that's a, a, a huge leap. Kind of, sort of, but not really, right? From uh, walking into the magic shop to becoming a neurosurgeon. And as your brain was repatterned when you spent those six weeks with Ruth is really what leads us to the discussion of neuroplasticity. Uh, absolutely. And Talk a this, little bit about that. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, well, at that time, remember, this was actually in 1968, which seems long, long ago. Oh, my God, 100 years ago. Yes, yes. <laughs> you were probably not even born. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but at that time, uh, there were no discussions about meditation or mindfulness. Certainly, the Beatles were around, and uh, uh, people may have heard of Maharishi Yogi, who they were following. But in a general sense, uh, this idea of Eastern religions or incorporating meditation as a method of uh, uh, gaining insight into yourself or decreasing stress and anxiety or this idea of neuroplasticity were really not even talked about or thought of. And in fact, from a neuroscience perspective at that time, it was felt that the brain did not change in adulthood at all and that what you had was what you had. But over the last uh, three decades, we found quite the opposite and now we understand that these types of practices actually uh, can, if you will, strengthen neural connections or create neuro, new neural connections. And it has profoundly affected um, a variety of domains. It's affected healthcare, and um, it's actually improved the life of millions and millions of people. 
And really, it's interesting because these types of practices, which she taught me within the context of Eastern philosophy or religions, have been around for thousands of years, but have not been, um, if you will, uh, recognized by the West as having significance until um, uh, empiric research has demonstrated uh, what I just uh, described. And talk a little bit about some of these practices that Ruth taught you. Sure. Um, what we now know is that there is a connection from your brain or your brainstem via what we call the vagus nerve uh, to your heart. It's a two-way street, if you will. Information comes in and information goes out. And not only does it innervate the heart with significant neural connections, but all the organs of the body. And <clears throat> there is a part of this system which is called the autonomic nervous system, which has two parts, if you will. One is the sympathetic nervous system, and the other is the parasympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is really that part which we associate with the flight or fight response. When we are fearful, when we are scared, that kicks in, and it's a protective mechanism which has been with us since we were on the savannah in Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. And it allowed us to recognize threat and respond to threat. And by doing so, uh, there, were there was the release of various uh, hormones or neurotransmitters that increased our heart rate, uh, that dilated our pupils, that tightened our sphincters, that diverted blood from our gastrointestinal tract or abdominal cavity and organs to our skeletal muscles so that we could run. And then there's, and this was critically important, then there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which many associate or call the digest or rest system. And this is where you're calm, your heart rate's at its baseline level, you don't feel threat. And when that system is engaged, actually, uh, your peripheral physiology works quite well. And the, I just want to just jump here in here and ask a, a question about the vagus nerve. And, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the doctor. When the, when the vagus nerve is activated, we're in that state of, that, of calm, the parasympathetic system is act is is alive and working uh absolutely that's uh correct so when uh you can be in that state where you can increase your vagal tone that stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and this is sort of your best state it's when you're much more able to thoughtfully discern it's when you're most creative in fact when you're most productive uh because when you have a sense of threat or anxiety, that shifts you not to being discerning, but to make immediate judgment because you're afraid. And those are not always the best judgments. And amazingly, what we've learned from the practices I uh, we've been talking about, or I uh, was describing, is that you have the ability to increase the tone of your vagus nerve and actually reap these incredible benefits. And one of the problems in modern society is that we were never meant to function at the manner, in the manner in which we do. And as a result, many people feel chronic low levels of threat and some high levels of threat. And it has a very, very horrible effect on your peripheral physiology and even affects your longevity. We're going to take a break in a minute. Um, and when we come back, I'd love to talk with you about ways to activate this vagus nerve and vagus is not a city in nevada that the vagus that we're talking about today because in that state of activation we're in a place of empathy compassion kindness unconditional positive regard etc etc right oh uh, that's exactly correct and the vagus nerve is actually the wandering nerve because it goes uh, throughout the body and is distributed, like I said, certainly in the heart, but also in other organs of the body. Let's go off to that break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the discussion with Dr. James Doty to learn more about him and his book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Hearts. To learn more, please visit intothemagicshop.com 
on Twitter at James Doty MD and on Facebook, James R. Doty MD. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the mind-brain connection. My guest right now is Dr. James R. Doty, who is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. He is also a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University, and he's also the author of the book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. So, Jim, prior to the break, we were talking about the emotional states that an activated vagus nerve gifts us. And I say gifts because I think these are the juice of life, these qualities, these emotions. Uh, no, and I agree with you. Uh, what people don't understand is that as a species, fundamentally, we are hardwired to connect and care uh, for others. And uh, compassion, as you know, is defined as the recognition of another's suffering with this motivation to alleviate that suffering. And to have what we call theory of mind, to have complex language, to have abstract thinking – required that our offspring uh, be cared for for well over a decade by uh, its parents or its mother. And the cost of that in terms of energy and resources is extraordinarily high. So what evolved within us is that when we care, when we recognize the suffering, let's say, of our offspring, we are highly motivated to alleviate that because when we do so, our physiology actually works at its best and we get a sense of pleasure or reward. And as we evolved as a species from the nuclear family to the hunter-gatherer tribe, which remember until six to 8,000 years ago was our primary survival strategy in groups of 10 to 50, this same ability to recognize if a member of our quote-unquote tribe uh, was suffering or in need was critical because it was a hostile environment and if they did not do their job, if you will, it put the group at risk. So these uh, neural connections where we see others and we're able to interpret facial expressions and body language and even smell have allowed us uh, to really be successful as a species one of the problems, though, is that as our society has evolved, uh, it's become much more complex. But our DNA is the same as it was 200,000 years ago. So some of the characteristics for many people uh, uh, are actually negative. And one of these is uh, uh, this threat response or the sympathetic nervous system. And so many in society feel overwhelmed. They feel anxious. They feel scared. They don't feel like they're in control. 
And this feeling uh, results in the release of uh, low levels of these hormones that in an acute situation are beneficial, but in a chronic situation are very, very deleterious to our health. So what this woman in the magic shop taught me was what I characterize as four tricks uh, that allowed me to incorporate what neuroscience has now shown us into my own life at the age of uh, 12. And as I said earlier, that really changed everything. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about what those, if you will, tricks are. Well, I would, I would love for you to share them. Please. I mean, meditation, we know, is one big one that's uh, getting a lot of press these days. And uh, you're absolutely correct. And one has to be careful to understand that one meditation is not equivalent to necessarily another. But the point is that these types of practices do have the ability to, quote, change everything uh, in many instances. And what this uh, woman taught me was one, this idea that I was overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. And as a result, it was affecting my ability to attend or be present or to be focused because you can't accomplish tasks if your muscles are all tight and you're always worried about what's going to happen to you next, which is very much the case when you're stressed and anxious. So the first thing she taught me was to relax the body, if you will, and this was to be able to sit still and with intention just go through all of my muscle groups and relax them. And then uh, once I started relaxing and, in fact, uh, focusing on a mantra, uh, but you can also focus on a candle or a variety of, of different ways to get there, but it allowed me to relax and to be present and truly present because the most beneficial things that happen to us in our lives are when we're truly present. Remember, as a species, we have a memory of a past and a perception of a future. Many people live in regret about the past or fear about the uncertainty of a future, and it stops them from being present. So that was the first lesson she taught me. The second lesson was this idea of taming the mind. And uh, what many people don't appreciate is a negative dialogue that goes on in their head. And it's one in which they beat themselves up every day. They say they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not attractive enough, they're not skinny enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is that this is not really your voice. It is a artificial creation that we have allowed to occur based on negative input that we've incorporated into this dialogue. And the problem is that when you tell yourself you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, etc., by definition, that is the case. And it really totally limits you from really reaching your full potential. You know, I had someone say to me, said, if I talk to people the way I talk to myself, no one would be my friend. <laughs> it's it's <And>, true. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and it's so sad because uh, this dialogue is so limiting. And I tell people it's like you've created a prison, but you cannot escape from a prison unless you are aware you are in the prison. And what huh. she me was the reality that this dialogue was not me and it was not real. And as a result, it allowed me to not have that emotional response to that negative dialogue. Because when you say bad things about yourself, when you're hypercritical, it again, it stimulates the stress response and it negatively affects your physiology. And the work of Kristen Neff and a variety of other individuals who've developed this concept of self-compassion, fundamentally, it's changing that dialogue from not one of being critical, but to one of self-affirmation, positivity, kindness, love, and acceptance of your own humanity and goodness. Yeah. And once you're able to do that, it changes how you see the world because when you go around beating yourself up, it's hard for you to look at others 
and be as gentle and as kind. Because if you beat yourself up, then oftentimes you beat other people up and you're hypercritical of them. And this was really the third lesson she taught me was this ability to change the dialogue then allowed me to learn to have an open heart and be less judgmental. Because what happens to all of us is that we look at others and if they have attributes that we don't have or if they're doing something uh, that we don't feel we're capable of or even simply the color of their skin, we make immediate judgments about them. And oftentimes those judgments are completely wrong. Yet when you carry this judgmental personality, it actually then affects all of the interactions you have with other people because you have this prejudgment about them instead of having an open heart and embracing them for their humanity and having no judgment. Now, I'm not saying this is easy to do and it happens overnight when you suddenly recognize. <laughs> but with practice, you can develop this open-heartedness, and certainly more than most of us are doing today. And then the fourth lesson Ruth taught me was this idea of the power of intention to uh, help you manifest your greatest dreams. And what I mean by this is that, and in some ways, in fact, this is like what is now used with athletes in terms of uh, visualizing, if you will, success or winning a race. You start out with this unclear vision, but if you see this vision in your mind, which may start out as a blur, but repeat it daily, every day about what your goal is, then more likely than not, it will manifest. Now, that's not to say that... Um, everything you attempt to do with this. But if your intention is correct, it doesn't negatively affect others. More likely than not, if it is to manifest, these types of techniques will help you get there. Now, I tell this to some people and they go, oh, man, that's great. You know, I go from point A to point B and it's a straight line and wow, everything is great. And that's not the way it works. There can be hills and valleys and detours. But at the end of the day, more likely than not, they will manifest. And fundamentally, by me looking at the world in a different way, by reacting to the world in a different way, utilizing the techniques that Ruth taught me, it changed the way the world reacted to me. And that changed everything. And that was the radical shift that you stepped into at 12 because of a certain willingness. And I think that, that, that you describe a very adversarial set of circumstances that you were living in as a, as a young boy. And it was the willingness to step out of that for something better, to find comfort to, to that I think catapulted you on the journey to begin with. No, I think you're exactly right. And, and remember how I described this woman, she had this radiant warmth, and that's open-heartedness. Yep. That yep. open-heartedness allowed me to let go of my own barriers to interaction because she was not judging me as being poor or not worthy. She just accepted me. <clears throat> and that changed everything. And each of us has this ability to really change another's life if we're just able to have open-heartedness, and a non-judgmental attitude. We are out of time. Will you come back and hang out with me again? I would love to. That would be uh, perfect. Oh, well, let's do that. To learn more and to buy Into the Magic Shop, which I urge you to run off and do, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. To learn more, please visit intothemagicshop.com. On Twitter, you can find Dr. Doty at James R. Doty, M.D., and on Facebook, James R. Doty, M.D. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. James Doty, wishing you kind thoughts, 
kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.